listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. We will be um, uh, finishing up uh, Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be uh, focusing on verses 18 to uh, 23. And this is an interesting uh, kind of part in the book of Colossians. It's kind of a, a hybrid section, if you will. Most of Paul's letters, I think we talked about this um, very early on in this series, um, he spends the first you know, few chapters or whatever teaching, and then he gives application. So there's a lot of seminary speak, there's a lot of indicatives and then imperatives um, in that. But in this section... Um, he kind of mixes, so it's kind of a hybrid. There's, there's some commands here and some warnings, but they still kind of, he's still teaching. So it made me think about um, our, our families and our teachers, right, who are talking about like hybrid models of school, right? Kind of the same thing. Like you're not, you know, in class, but you're not, not in class, you're not homes, you're kind of like both. So it's kind of the same thing, right? So just trying to build a bridge there with that. So, um, Anyway, last week we talked about um, just two verses, uh, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, and we kind of landed on this idea that we are going to experience judgment in our Christian lives, and that judgment can come um, from outside, from the watching world, um, that judgment actually can come from within side, which is what the Colossian people were experiencing, right? They had some false teachers in there that were kind of creating some issues and disturbances and were judging the people um, for the way that they were living, and Paul encouraged the believers not to let that distract them from their pursuit of Jesus and what they knew to be true. Um, we landed on a, a discussion on legalism and these three kind of areas we see legalism and salvation, um, in rules, and what we called functional legalism, the kind of legalism of spirit, um, not necessarily of doctrine, but how you live. It's your words versus your actions kind of idea. But ultimately, um, that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. Christ met every demand needed for us to be reconciled to God. And so there is rest there, and there's a fulfillment that Christ has given to us. Um, we're going to see um, more of that here this morning in verses 18 through 23. So let me uh, read the text for us this morning. I'm going to read all. I'm going to read 16 through 23, um, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have fun. So let me pray for us. Or let me read rather than I'll pray. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions about of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joint and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God's. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to, to be here and to gather. Lord, it is a privilege to be able to do that. Lord, it is such a joy to do that, to, to watch and to hear the fellowship and to, to hear the prayers prayed to your name. Lord, in the way that you burden each and every one of us and in different ways, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to voice those concerns and to rest in you and who you are. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are in absolute, perfect control of everything that takes place. Lord, may that be a source of peace and comfort for us. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us an instruction book, a roadmap for this life. Lord, there are so many competing voices. There are so many competing ideas and theories. Lord, but when it all comes down to it, it's your truth and your word is truth. Lord, and you sanctify us in that truth. So I pray that we would stick close to your word, Lord, that we would not stray, Lord, that we would not be confused or duped by the things of this world, but we would rest in you, that we would rest in your word and have confidence in what you have for us and what you will say to us here today. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So there's something fascinating going on right in this church in Colossae. Right, and we've talked about all the pressures that they were under, and it was kind of a melting pot of people, and it was also a melting pot of religious ideas. And so there wasn't one specific thing that Paul was kind of targeting, so it wasn't like a rifle shot from Paul, it was more like a shotgun, because there were so many things going on, and you had to kind of touch on all of them and speak into all of them, but to do that... Right, he's been relying solely on right, the supremacy of Christ and has been beating that drum over and over and over. And he will continue to beat that drum this morning in our passage. Right, and he tells the people right, in verses 18 and 19 to let no one disqualify them by insisting on ascetism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous minds. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so they weren't to, right, the people were not to let the people judge them last week. And now they're not to let anyone disqualify them. Right? And that's a command. So there's this, this stern warning from Paul, right? Don't let anyone judge you and don't let anybody disqualify you. And they're, they're very similar. They may be nuanced a little bit differently, right? To be disqualified, right? You're going to be judged as not being worthy, right? And so you're going you're gonna to be disqualified from it. It has a very, like, sports kind of idea to it, a sports theme to it. Right? And he's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you. What disqualify you from, from what? From who you are in, in Christ, right? From, from, from putting on these, like, you need to do this and you need to do that. Keep this festival, right? D don't let them, don't let that disqualify you. Who are you in Christ, right? Christ fulfilled the law. Now, they would do this disqualifying, right, by insisting on some certain things. And Paul kind of fleshes out three of these, and then he's going to kind of do a, a catch-all in verse 19. All right, so these, these, these false teachers, right, they delighted in, right, and, and this insisted on certain things, right? And, and they likely, right, either, you know, right out directly or indirectly put pressure on the Colossian people, the Colossian believers to kind of join them in these things that they were delighting in. 
And the first thing that Paul says that they're delighting in or insisting on is, is asceticism. Right? This, this severe self-discipline of any indulgence or extreme self-denial. Right? That the word for asceticism there is actually false humility. Right? Which, again, I find very, very fascinating that these people, these teachers, were insisting on all these things. Hey, deny yourself. Right? Don't, that, don't, don't, that, that's, don't, don't, that's an indulgence. You don't need that. Right? Deny yourself in these areas. And it seemed like they were being super holy, but they were actually being super proud. And so it was this false sense of humility that they were pushing these people. Because if you do these things, if you deny yourself, and if you don't take part in these indulgences... It's showing how righteous you are, right? You're going to be more spiritual. You're going to earn better standing with God's. And so it's rooted, again, it's rooted kind of in legalism, but it's rooted in, in, in idolatry as well. Now, they had put so much emphasis on certain things that it became an idol. And it might not have been a bad thing, right? Not eating certain foods or not going certain places or doing certain things might not have been bad, but they put so much emphasis on it, it became an idol, and they became fixated on it. And so created this false sense of humility. Now, there are times, there are seasons, right, where, where self-denial isn't a, a bad thing. Right, there was a gentleman that I worked with um, right, right out of school, um, he was a great guy. He actually ended up moving up to Southwest Harbor, uh, Maine, years and years ago. Um, and throughout um, my time working with him, it, it came to find out that he was a believer. Right? And, and we, were, we never really had any conversation. It wasn't like, hey, are you a Christian? And so this took like months of just working together, realizing like, okay, you're different. You're different. Right? And then finally we had this conversation. Right? And this man, um, right, had, he came out of a really uh, rough background. God saved him out of a, a really tremendously uh, difficult background. Um, and he would not drink. Now, it wasn't that he believed that drinking, that Christians can't drink, okay? It's a self-control issue. But he would not because he knew himself well enough to know that if he had one drink, right? That was a self-control issue for him. And he was going to spiral, and it would not be, not be good. And so he, therefore, denied himself. I wouldn't take part in that. Right? So, so in times, like, this self-denial is good, but you can heap on self-denial on people and say, well, real Christians don't do this. Real Christians don't do that. And that's what the Colossian people were doing, the Colossian false teachers were doing. Right? Missionaries at times will have to forego certain things and, for, and because not because they want to be, quote-unquote, more spiritual, but because they're looking to build bridges and build relationships with people that they're ministering to, so they're going to have to maybe forego something in order to help them in the cause of the gospel and reaching people for, for Christ. Right? So not all self-denial is bad, but what's happening in Colossae, that is bad. Because if you didn't do, if you didn't deny yourself these things, then you would be disqualified. You would be condemned. You'd be told, well, you're not really a true Christian because you're not doing this, or you are doing this. And then now they're worshiping angels. 
Right? So they're insisting on ascetism and the worship of angels. So ultimately what they're doing, right? they're denying the supremacy of Christ. They believe that there's actually something else out there that is worthy of worship. Now Paul's already kind of went at great lengths at this at the end of chapter 1, beating that drum. But this is what they were doing. Right? And historically in that region of Colossae, Right? This was an issue. Angel worship was, was a big deal in that region of the world during Paul's day. And you can read secular um, historians who talk about that. So it was, a, it was an issue, and Paul's saying, don't, right? No, right? Only Jesus is worthy of our worship. And then these teachers were going on in detail about visions. I had this dream the other night. And this is what this dream, this is what was going on. And so, and they would take these dreams, like they'd go on in detail. So they, that means that those, those dreams would become kind of the, the content of their teaching, right? It's this special knowledge, this special revelation. God spoke to me last night at 2.30 in the morning, and this is what he's told me. Right? Now, you can't, you can't like verify that, and you can't really dispute it, right? You're, you're stuck, Right? So what do you do as a believer when you hear that? What does the Colossian people do? Like, well, it, it could have been. Like, maybe, maybe not. Like, and so you're, you're, you're stuck. And it's the same thing today. If someone comes up to you and says, God gave me this special word for you, right? When, when, you, when you hear that, right, that, that, that's that spiritual sniff test, right? You kind of, wait a minute. And, and you, you want to like, okay, unpack that for me. And right, and how does that square with the Bible? What does Scripture have to say about this? There was a lady I'm in the church that I grew up in who had an experience, and I remember it. Is and I don't know why I remember this, but I do. Um, she told this story of of another lady in the church who came to her and who claimed that uh, an angel appeared to her in her bedroom in the middle of the night and gave her these words that she was supposed to speak to this other lady in the church. Right, thankfully, the other lady says, like, uh, no, thank you, I'm good, and walked out. <laughs> right, that's going on in detail about visions. Right, and these, these teachers then were puffed up right, without reason right, by his sensuous minds. Right, so there's this, this arrogance that these teachers had. Right? They, again, this, this ascetism, right, this self-denial, this, this, these visions that they were having, this worship of angels, Right? There they was this, there was such an arrogance. They were puffed up, and they claimed to have the right to stand. They claimed that they had more truth than anybody else had, and that therefore they were perfectly justified in disqualifying the Colossian believers if they didn't do what they told them to do. And actually, Paul says that that's going to reveal their hearts. Right? They were so focused on, on worldly things and other things and not on Christ. Right? He's going to go on and tell that they, they've removed themselves from the head. They're not holding fast to, to Christ. And so their, their minds, right? the sum total is how this word is used. It's the total idea of their, their whole mental and just their whole state of being was just wrapped up in conceit and an arrogance, and they believe that that fueled their right to disqualify and their right to judge people. This is the second time that the word mind is used in the book of Colossians. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 21, where 
Paul says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. All right, so this idea that Paul has is that you are, right, when it comes to our minds, we can be very, very anti-God. And right, now he uses it again and says it's a sensuous mind, right? And that, and that can mean, sensuous can mean attractive, um, but it can also mean um, <clears throat> a reliance on your senses rather than intellect, which I believe is probably how Paul's using it. Um, and so if you think about it, right, there's a, there's a little kind of bit of sarcasm in Paul there potentially, right? There might be a little bit of a, a jab, Oh, look how emotional they are, right? They're not thinking clearly. They're relying on emotion. It's experience-driven. But this is what was happening in the church, and it was creating division, and it was creating challenges. And so Paul is going to speak. So I want to pause here for a little bit and unpack this and bring it maybe to us, um, apply it to us here, what we see today in our day and our age. So what's happening, right, is you have different people. Now, you could see, think of if you're, if you're a false teacher, um, which I hope you would never be, but let's say you're a false teacher in Colossae, right, and you, you have one vision, someone else has another vision, you believe you should deny something else, you believe, no, you can indulge in that, but not in that, right? You, so you have this melting pot of ideas, right? It's called syncretism when you start drawing from other, res, other religions and other sources to kind of build your, your belief system. And so this is happening in the church in Colossae. Now, it includes Judaism. It includes those things, but they're adding to it. We saw this, um, we heard of this in Alaska when we were there um, on a short-term mission trip years ago. One of the biggest challenges that uh, missionaries have in Alaska, pastors have in Alaska, is syncretism and where these people take their, their Native American culture and they start pushing that into Christianity. Right? And, and so it creates... It creates challenges and it creates tension. I think we talked about, I don't remember when, but we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism, right, and how people will take bits and pieces of the religions and ideas that they like, and they'll, they'll take pieces and they'll kind of make their own belief system, right? That was what was happening in Colossae. Right? These teachers were pursuing and selling a deeper and higher religious experience, a higher level of knowledge on the people. Right? It, was all, it was all very subjective. Right? It was all personal experience, personal opinion. Right? So there's this, this melting pot of beliefs and this melting pot of, of this is what you do and this is what you shouldn't do. Like I said, it was subjective. It wasn't objective. Objective is where you kind of you push your feelings aside, so to speak, and you're really just kind of concerned about the facts and the truth. So it's subjective. So it's, it's extremely self-focused. And so it made me think about some words that we, we hear uh, today, um, self-authenticated, um, self-validation, um, self-actualized. Um, and if someone's self-authenticated, um, they're going to prove themselves to be genuine based upon their character. They don't need anyone from the outside or any influences from the outside. It's all very internalized in how you become self-authenticated. Um, you have self-validation, right? And that's people are going to establish their own idea of worth 
um, based upon them themselves and who they are and, the, and their likes. Right? Ultimately, we know as believers that our worthiness right, is, in, is because we are created in the image and likeness of God. That's where our value comes from. Right? And that in and of ourselves, we're desperately wicked and we're sinful people. The heart is deceitful above all things. And then you have the self-actualization, right? That you're, you, you can arrive at this, this, this pinnacle of experience, right, in who you are. It celebrates the individual. It celebrates your creativity. It celebrates your, your intellect and, and your, your social potential, if you will. And so it's very, it's very me-focused and self-focused, and so as I started thinking about this a little bit more, like, and again, as you start hearing those words and you start watching what's happening, right, you, you see the fruit of this. Because the self-actualization is actually, it was called the human potential movement. It was back in the early 1900s, 1902 to 1987 primarily. Um, so I grew up in the human potential movement. I dated myself. And I actually had a shirt, believe it or not, my parents let me get this shirt, that said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. <laughs> and they let me wear it. Like, I still to this day, it's a head scratcher for me, right? But that's the, that's the, the human potential movement. And this guy, this, this uh, psychologist, Abraham Maslow, had this idea, there's this, this pyramid of five, five needs, and the, the, the point, the pinnacle of that pyramid is when you arrive at self-actualization. It's the self-fulfillment of everything that you, would ever, you could ever need, want, and hope for. Which um, led into this movement called the, the self-esteem movement in the 1980s and the 1990s. Right, so somebody who, who, who lives in this and was kind of raised in this and been influenced by this right, would believe that, for the most part, right, people are naturally good, and they just want to reach their full potential. But here's the problem, right? Society, right? Society, right, is oppressive. And so society is holding you back from reaching your full potential. And so any problem that you have in your life stems from the oppression of society. Do you hear, right, you, you see all of a sudden like, wow, so it's not you. It's not your, right, biblical worldview here. It's not your sinfulness. It's it's. It's the man who's keeping you down. It's society who's keeping you back. Society's holding you back. Yeah, victim, victim mentality. And so people are only going to feel good in an environment of unconditional positive influences as they seek to use their internal resources, their intellect, and their, what they know in their, their gifts and talents. Right, so then you, you get to the, the self-esteem movement, right, where everyone gets a trophy. Um, you, you, teachers don't mark great papers in red pens anymore because someone might get upset if they see red pen on their paper. 
right? So it, it's, it's your own, then all of a sudden, right, it, it leads to, right, well, then you can't speak into anyone's life. You can't speak truth because you don't want to upset them. You don't want to keep them down. And so then all of a sudden, everyone has their own standard and their own, their own, their own idea of what truth is. And so then you're free to express your idea of truth any way you want to, and there's not going to be any consequences for it because we don't want to make you upset. And so then all of a sudden, truth is unbelievably relative, right? And, and, and there's no one that's going to, quote-unquote, hold you accountable because they don't want to upset you. It's fascinating to see it, right? And this is what's happening, right, back in the church in Colossae, Right? And we see it, even to this day, still playing out. Right? And so anytime anyone tries to, to take a stand and, and speak truth and hold it, make there be standards, right? you're, you're, you're closed-minded, you're bigoted, you're oppressive. Right? And so, so we see this. Right? We, we, we see this. Right? And, and this can happen, right? This can happen in churches just as easily as it can happen out in our culture. And so we can talk about culture, and that's easy, but what does it look like closer to home, so to speak? What does it look like in our own lives? Right? When I have my own standard of truth, and you better toe the line according to what my truth is, or else, right? Then I have every right to disqualify you. Because you didn't meet my standards. And we all have, right? We all have these standards in mind. We all have these ideas in mind, right? That we like to judge people by and to disqualify people by. And Paul is going to go on now in verse 19 and say, The problem in Colossae, which is the exact same problem that I have when I do these things, Right, as I am not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God's. Right, these false teachers were grasping at anything that would make them feel good, anything that they could kind of gain the upper hand they could use to validate themselves. Right, and they're pressuring the people to do the same thing. If you're a Christian, then you need to do this too. They were so preoccupied with, with rules and self-denial and spiritual beings and visions that they had lost contact with the only true source of spiritual growth, right? Christ, right? They're relying on themselves, right? They become the standard of what true growth means. no. Right? Jesus, he provides leadership. Jesus, he unifies us where you won in Christ because of what he's done on the cross. And he is the source of provision, growth for every member. He's the one who's going to bring us to maturity. Right? It's his work in our hearts. It's his work in our minds that will, by his grace, will not be hostile to the things of God. That we're not going to be drifted away by the sensuous things of this mind and, and our emotions and our feelings. And we need to get back to what truth is and rely on the truth. Right? To pursue anything but Christ is folly. Right? 
It's Jesus who's going to, to nourish us. It's Jesus who's going to unite us. And he's the only one that can unite. He's the only one that can bring true growth. And so there's all this pressure, right, on us as people. There's all this pressure that the Colossians were feeling. There's all the, the pressure that, that the churches may be feeling. But the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Right? Christ has got it. Right? He's sovereign over all this, perfectly sovereign all of all of this. Remember, in that chapter 2, verse 3, right, he is the storehouse of all wisdom and all knowledge. In John 15, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And true spiritual wholeness can only be found in him. We are fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, we have experiences. Absolutely we do. Right? And in Colossae, they would take those experiences and say, well, this is, this is new truth and this is new wisdom and knowledge that I have now, so I need to take my experience and load that experience on you and say, well, this is what this means for you. But we need to understand and remember Right, that those experiences, right, make us more like Christ. Right, it's progressive sanctification. Each experience that you have, each trial, each victory, everything that happens in your life is there to make you more like Jesus. Praise God for that. We don't need anything but Him. And so then Paul, in verses 20 to 23, just puts this, this question before the people. And it is, it is a powerful question. Right? He's going to challenge them very, very directly. And there's a little bit of sarcasm in here. And we love this. Paul was a sarcastic guy. Right? But he's going to ask them to ponder something. If, with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. If you are in Christ, if you are fulfilled in Christ, why? Why are you allowing the things of this world to distract you? Why are you allowing these teachers to pass judgment on you? Why are you allowing these teachers to disqualify you? If you know that Christ is supreme, if you have been gripped by the power of the gospel, if you are fulfilled only in Christ, why? Do you do this? And what's happening here is Paul's seeing, right, the church. Again, it had a really good start, 
right? But he's starting to see just these little maybe areas where the church is giving a little bit of grounds. Right? He, he, and he's basically telling them, like, don't, don't do this, right? The pressure is great, but don't permit yourself, don't allow yourself to be swayed by these false teachers, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They look really good, right? Talk about external language here, not the hearts, right? They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body. And it's like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were really good about the externals and how they walked and who they, you know, they didn't interact with people because they were unclean and they had all these external standards. Right? But Jesus pronounced a lot of harsh condemnation on them about washing the outside of the cup, neglecting the insides, them being empty tombs. And so Paul justifies right, this, 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 this question, this, this thought to ponder, this self-evaluation people. He, he, he does this, and he can reject the teaching of the false teachers for three reasons. Number one, it has to do, all these rules have to do with matters of the world. Right? The, 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 the rules reflect human, not divine teaching. And the, the, these rules aren't bringing and cannot bring spiritual transformation. And if you read the Old Testament, right, the Mosaic Law, you keep the Mosaic Law. If you keep the Mosaic Law perfectly, then you'll achieve perfection. Well, no one could do that. That's why God had to send Jesus. And you, you did, these rules are not going to bring you to perfection. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be true spiritual transformation. Right, ultimately, it is a, a self-made religion right, that these people were so fanatical about things. Right, they were making their own religion. They were pulling and almost making their own religion, trying to get people to follow their own religion. And they thought that they were humble, and they thought they were holy, but they were deceived. But ultimately, it's not going to change the hearts they are of no value, Paul says, in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Right? Your growth and maturity has, is an issue of your heart, and it's the transformation of your heart. That's why from the, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're to guard your heart with all vigilance or all diligence. Right? It's always been a hard issue with God. It always will be a hard issue with God because he knows that's what needs to change. That's why he can change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's why he writes the law on your heart. Right? It's your heart that's an issue. It's not the external things. Right? And so the message of the gospel, God changing our hearts, right, is why Paul just hammers away 
constantly at the gospel. That's why we need the gospel each and every day of our lives because that's where we get to the heart of the matter and the heart of the issue. So the gospel speaks against all these attempts for us to rely on our own ability, our own wisdom, our own understanding, right? making these grand gestures to God's living in such a way to try to make us more acceptable to God or earn more favor with God. And all we're doing, right, is putting so much confidence in our own self and in our flesh and in our ability and not in Christ. Remember, God has accomplished all that is required to be restored and reconciled back to him through Jesus. There's nothing further that we can do. But we are, we're a fickle people. I'm a fickle person, right? And I can, I can believe that, and I can say that, but how do I live? Right? That's the issue. How do I live? And so when Paul says, if with Christ you've died, why? It's foolishness to do anything else. Right? To pursue anything else, I've said it a handful of times, and I'll say it again, partly because I need to hear it probably more than you do. Right? But here's what happens with, here's what happens with foolishness. Because ultimately, um, foolishness um, is a form of rebellion. And what you're saying, right, what, what the false teachers were saying right, is they're being foolish. And remember, Paul, Paul uses that word in other, in other letters that he writes, right, it's the, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And, and, and it's the same thing here. These false teachers are foolish because what they're saying is that God isn't enough. It's God plus not doing these things. It's God plus visions. It's God plus, right, worshiping angels. It's God plus, that's what is happening. God is not enough. And it's rooted ultimately in pride, in pride of self. And the, the antidote for someone who is foolish is wisdom, and understanding who God is, right? And so Paul, right, is showing what these false teachers are teaching you, and I'm paraphrasing, is they're showing you their, their, their hearts, and they're showing that they're, 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 just, they're foolish, and, and they want you to be foolish with them. So, but, but if, right, if you are with Christ, why? He's all satisfying. You're completely fulfilled in him. He is enough. And so don't be duped by the foolishness of this world. Right? I need to not be duped by the foolishness of this world. So what Paul is telling the Colossian people is 
really, you, you say that you're, you're, you, you died with Christ, you say that you're fulfilled with Christ, you say you've experienced the power of the gospel in your life, then why do you live this way? Why do you allow yourself to be pulled into these areas? And we need to do the exact same thing each and every day of our lives, right? Why? And Paul's going to go on, right, and starting in chapter 3 next week, and he's going to start telling them about how they need to, to put on the new self, right, and there's going to be change, and this is where he's going to start really kind of hitting the application piece. Right? But what Paul has done so far Right, as he showed them, right, if we go all the way back to chapter one, verse one, right, he's thanking God for what he's thanking God for, for the work that God is doing in their lives, what he's done and what he is doing in their lives. And this is all being done through the gospel, which bears fruits and which is growing in the worlds. He prays that these people would have a lifestyle that pursues Christ to know God's will, to grow in wisdom and understanding, and, and to bear much fruit. And why does he pray that prayer? He prays that prayer because Christ is supreme. He is preeminent over all things, over the created world, over salvation. That is why. So Paul can rejoice in suffering and laboring for these people because he sees the work of God and the growth and the maturity in these people. And Christ is the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. And we need to be rooted and built up and established in Christ. Don't be taken captive by empty deceit, human tradition, right? Don't let people judge you. Don't let people disqualify you. If you're in Christ, you're completely fulfilled. You're restored back to God. You can, you can rest, but the work that you do, you do because you've been fulfilled in Christ, that appreciation for what he's done and gratitude for what he has done for you. Ask yourself those questions, if, then why, right? Two very powerful questions. And so as we prepare now to take communion together, it's an opportunity for us to, to remember Right to remember who we are in Christ, to remember the gospel, the power of God in our lives. But the reality is, is that we are we still battle with sin, and so God may have used something this morning, um, whether it be a, a prayer that was prayed, a song that was sung, a conversation maybe that you had before the service, or maybe the teaching of his word that may have brought a sin to, to, to mind and brought a sin to light, that you need to confess that sin. Confess that sin. Do that work. It's a lifelong labor, sin, right, in putting sin to death in our lives. But we remember the gospel we remember what God has done for us through his son. We need to, we need to 
labor there, if you will. We need to, to dwell there. Right? And it's, it can be easy to, to, to think about other people and other things, right? But we're called to, to evaluate our own hearts, right? So evaluate your own hearts, right? Remember the gospel, but then we celebrate, right? Because, man, we, we long to be out of this world, don't we? I hope so. I hope you do. I do. <laughs> Right? I do, man. I can't wait. Right? As, as, as we watch what's happening, as we see what's happening, right? Yeah, it should get us riled up, probably, because of the sin that we see. But it should make us long for heaven. It should make us long to be in the presence of Christ. And so we remember the gospel and we celebrate the gospel. So let me pray for us, and then we'll partake together. Lord, I just thank you for uh, this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, the truth of your words. Lord, may, may I be a person, may I be a guy who asks myself, if, then why? As we prepare ourselves now to take communion, Lord, may we ask ourselves those questions as well. Lord, may we be quick to confess sin and to deal with sin. Lord, but may, may we rest in knowing that we are ultimately fulfilled in Christ and that we have been, we have been redeemed and reconciled back to you through your son. Lord, but as believers, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our, in our being. Lord, in that the Spirit is used to, to help us to remember things and to bring teaching to mind and to help us understand your word. The Spirit is also there to, to convict as well. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, that I would not grieve the Holy Spirit, and I would confess the sin that needs to be confessed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that we would, we would do that work of examining our hearts. But that we also would come forward this morning and we would, with a sense of celebration and joy. Lord, because we know because of Christ we are fully redeemed in you. And that because of Christ we have eternity in heaven with you. So Lord, may we remember... And may we celebrate this morning. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.